Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. Each week since the outbreak of the pandemic, I've hosted a conference call to discuss aspects of COVID-19. Each speaker only gets six minutes. After everyone has a chance to speak, there's a question and answer period. I end the program with a one-minute note of optimism from each speaker. This Sunday's program focuses on speech on campus. My co-host this week is uh, Rick Banks, who is a professor of law at Stanford University. Our first speaker today is Ted Hall. Ted is a college fraternity brother of mine from the University of Pennsylvania, and he is now the CEO of Baco Diagnostics. His firm does COVID-19 lab tests, and I've asked Ted to tell us about how the technology for COVID-19 is evolving. I also want to hear about testing at home and other low-cost testing methods and whether that will be the real alternative in the near future. Our second speaker is Patrick Allen. Patrick teaches American history at Emory University. You met Patrick a few weeks ago on What Happens Next when he, was, he told us about the cholera epidemic in London in 1854 and how John Snow persuaded local authorities to remove the handle from an infected well. Patrick also teaches for the great courses, and I've had the pleasure of taking a number of his online classes, including the American West, the conservative tradition, the art of teaching, the Industrial Revolution, and American religious history. I've literally spent hundreds of hours listening to Patrick. Today, Patrick is going to tell us about the success he has had teaching virtually for his classes at Emory University. My son, Jonathan, asked me recently, why can't I get a teacher like Patrick? Well, if we can figure out how to make virtual learning work and scale it appropriately, every child can. Our next speaker is Paul Peterson, who is a professor at Harvard. Paul, uh, professor Peterson has written about how children lose out when schools are not open for in-person learning. What happens next then pivots to our special topic of the day, which is speech on campus. Our first speaker in this segment is Alan Charles Coors, who is an emeritus professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania. I listened to Professor Coors' classes on the great courses as well. His course, The Birth of the Modern Mind, the Intellectual History of the 17th-18th Centuries, are incredible. Today, Professor Coors will speak about the state of free speech on campus. Our next speaker is Marianne Franks, who is a law professor at the University of Miami. Professor Franks is going to answer the questions, who gets to speak for you on campus, and is there a manufactured speech crisis? Michael McConnell is the next speaker. Professor McConnell is a former U.S. appellate judge for the Tenth Circuit and is currently a professor of law at Stanford and the director of Stanford's Constitutional Law Center. Professor McConnell has a new book out entitled The Miseducation of America, Elite Universities, and the Crisis of Democracy. That's coming out soon. After that, we will hear from Heidi Katrosser, who is a law professor at the University of Minnesota and currently visiting at Northwestern University. She will discuss her recent paper entitled Free Speech, Higher Education, and the PC Narrative. Our final speaker today is Philip Carl Salzman, who is Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at McGill University. Professor Salzman will discuss academic freedom. This call is being recorded. I'd like to turn to my co-host, Rick Banks, for some opening remarks about speech on campus. Rick, fire away. Thank you, Larry. Uh, it's a pleasure to join you. I should start out by noting that I am a colleague of Professor McConnell's and the, the book that Larry mentioned, uh, uh, The Miseducation of America, uh, The Crisis of Democracy, that actually is my book. Uh, if Mike McConnell wants to join me as a co-author, we'll have to discuss that after. My God. But uh, uh, it, 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 it'll be coming out uh, as soon as I complete it. Uh, I'm very excited about that. I'm also very excited uh, to have this session on speech on campus. Uh, this is a topic that being a faculty member, I can't help but think about uh, 
many times. Uh, our ability to speak freely is unquestionably a measure of the health of our democracy. And the fact that speech on campus is so fraught now is, to put it simply, not a good sign uh, with respect to the health of our democracy. If universities cannot be places where we exemplify and embody the ideals that should be ideals that are central to the society, uh, then we are in deep trouble. Our hope today with this session, uh, which I'm anxious to, to get on to, so I will be brief. Our hope today with this session is that we can model the kind of dialogue that we need so much more of in our deeply polarized society, that is respectful debate among well-informed people with expertise, but who nonetheless have very different perspectives and very different uh, recommendations, and who all recognize in a deep sense that as Firmly as they may hold their own views, uh, they are also open to the possibility of learning from others so that we may advance the common good. Back to you, Larry. Okay. Um, our first speaker is Ted Hall. Uh, he is the CEO of Baco Diagnostics. Go ahead, Ted. Thanks, Larry. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, before we get into uh, the, the topic of the day, I'm going to give you a, a brief update on the current state of COVID testing. Uh, in my opinion on the role that testing can play going forward to dramatically reduce the spread of the virus and, and also to provide the confidence needed to further open the economy. As a reminder, there are two types of COVID testing, viral and antibody. Antibody testing uh, tells you if you've had prior infection and virus tests tell you if you are currently infected. Antibody tests generated initial excitement based on the promise of a positive result conferring worry-free status. However, the lack of clinical data supporting that value and the high cost of testing uh, in the absence of insurance or government reimbursement has dramatically suppressed the demand for antibody testing. Viral tests are split into two types, PCR and antigen testing. PCR has been the test that has gotten the most attention. It's the current gold standard with the greatest accuracy measured accuracy being measured and how sensitive and how specific the test is. But PCR tests are expensive and currently take, even in our improved capacity environment, still take 24 to 48 hours for results. After initial issues with capacity and major delays in turnaround time, uh, current testing capacity in the US is somewhere around a million tests per day. Improvements in testing uh, have the, the potential of even increasing that further. At this point in time, capacity of PCR testing is no, is no longer an issue. The PCR test access has also greatly improved uh, through opportunities created by state and local government collection centers, uh, collection at CV, of specimens at CVS pharmacies, and certain at-home collection devices that have been approved by the FDA. So in spite of this increased capacity, current volume is actually a little over about 500,000 PCR tests a day. That's how many tests are being done in the US. At this point, cost is now the biggest, area, biggest barrier to broad application of testing. PCR tests can cost anywhere from $50 to $250 and are only covered by insurance or government programs for symptomatic patients or those with known exposure. So what I'm saying is testing is not, for PCR testing is not covered if we want to apply it in a surveillance uh, testing uh, or monitoring capacity. The rapid antigen test is the second type of viral test. Abbott recently launched uh, such a test that's comparable to the PCR 
test in accuracy in symptomatic patients. It takes only 15 minutes to do, generates, uh, to generate a result, and costs about $5 a test. But it will only be available through licensed healthcare providers. This technology does not require special equipment and actually uses a, a technology similar to that in pregnancy testing. No data has been published so far on the Abbott test uh, in asymptomatic individuals, but it's, it's likely, given the characteristics of antigen tests uh, previously, that it's going to be less sensitive in asymptomatic individuals than the PCR test, and that is there will be a, a higher likelihood of false negative results. So when we look forward uh, and see how the testing market has shifted and where we're going, we started with an acute care focus of testing. Uh, and we've slowly shifted towards uh, more monitoring and screening testing. We've also seen a broad application and increase in testing in nursing homes as, as we recognize that that was a particularly vulnerable population. And with the possibility of an outright cure unlikely and vaccine availability to be initially limited, in my opinion, massive uh, screening testing is the best way uh, to contain the spread of the disease through identification of infection as early as possible. So this points to the need to get a low-cost uh, rapid test into the market. As an example of what employee screening can do, my company implemented a testing, testing of all employees right after we launched the test in April. We tested every employee every two weeks and immediately when someone was symptomatic or returned from traveling and we wanted to make sure they weren't bringing the virus back into the office. Since the beginning of April, we've had six employees test positive out of about 130. Every one of those employees were asymptomatic when they were tested. All were self-quarantined, returned to work within two weeks after, uh, and after having two negative subsequent test results. Without this testing program, it's certainly possible that these employees would have infected peers and potentially cause our laboratory to be shut down. We were able to implement the program, of course, because we, we offer the testing. Our costs of doing the tests are relatively low, and we can generate test results in, in less than 24 hours. In my opinion, the best way uh, to do a testing program is to offer a test like the Abbott rapid antigen test broadly to the population, not require um, a, a healthcare professional uh, to initiate the test or collect the test, but perform it by individuals at home or at work. Um, the lower accuracy of the test that I mentioned, which is probably likely, in my opinion, can be overcome by significantly increasing the frequency of the test. When you're talking about a $5 test, it literally is something you can do every day. That's the end of my remarks. Thank, Thank you, you Ted. No, it sounds very promising. Um, I sure hope it would be great if we could do a five-dollar test at the office every day. Um, when you say it's, um, it doesn't work with asymptomatics, does that mean that we'll still have, we'll still have that major exposure to that part of the population? Well, I, I didn't say it didn't work. Um, Abbott has only published data on uh, its comparison to PCR in symptomatic patients. Um, it's, it's likely it's less sensitive uh, in asymptomatic patients, but it should still work. It, even if at, say, 60 to 70% comparison to PCR, you can overcome a lot of that if you're running the test every day. Okay. I'll come back to you in the Q&A in a minute. All right. Our next speaker is Patrick Allett. Uh, Patrick is the Cahoon Family Professor of American History at Emory University. Go ahead, Patrick. Thanks very much, Larry. It's great to be here again. 
When Emory University closed down halfway through the spring semester, I was on sabbatical. So I didn't start teaching with Zoom until mid-August. Now, a month later, I feel like a grizzled veteran, and I have to say it's unexpectedly enjoyable. My course on the history of American foreign policy has 30 members. It meets for two 45-minute discussion meetings each week. There's a little bit of the control freak in every professor, and this is a tendency I've never tried to repress. When I'm with students in a real classroom, I don't let them eat or drink, don't let them wear hats, and don't let them use computers or cell phones. Now they've got to use computers, and I can see some of them brazenly munching cereal and swigging energy drinks. The dress rules are also in precipitous decline. On the other hand, I can still call on individuals directly to answer difficult questions, especially if their attention seems to be wandering. For the most part, they're ready with convincing answers, showing that, even in their remote locations, they have been fulfilling the assignments and thinking about the issues. On the screen before me, everyone's face is equally close, so I no longer have to worry about the situation, common enough in real classrooms, of the students who sit at the back of the room and try to avoid engagement. I'm impressed by the students' resiliency. They don't seem to be giving in to self-pity. They are taking the work seriously, and they at least appear to be as cheerful as ever. I always open the Zoom meeting four or five minutes before the actual starting time to have the pleasure of hearing the bell ring as, one by one, they enter the waiting room. At first, the chimes are occasional. Then, in the last minute, 20 or 30 students arrive in quick succession. And by one minute past the starting time, everyone is there. 25 eager participants from all over the United States and a few more from India and Korea. The university asked me to pre-record my lectures, which would normally take up about half of every 75-minute class. Students watch these lectures on their own time. Then we devote all synchronous Zoom time to discussion. I soon discovered that I can check who's actually watched these recorded lectures by the specified day. A little gentle reminder in week three led to a quick improvement in their timely watching. The students had not realized until then that I could monitor their viewing. Don't think of me as big brother, but rather as the possessor of a device for the benign encouragement of punctuality. In normal times, I hold office hours two afternoons each week for one-on-one -on -one sessions with students on issues relating to the course. Now, office hours are done by appointment, also on Zoom. It works fine, though I am sometimes aware of an inversion effect where the students are clearly more familiar with the technology than I am. There have been two or three occasions when something has gone wrong, and I've been able to correct it only through the solicitous help of the students themselves. All in all, I'm amazed at how well the course is going. There is nevertheless a downside to teaching with Zoom. It's much more difficult to get the students talking to each other as they would do in a classroom. One of the many pleasures of live teaching is to encourage one student to stake out a position, then defend it against articulate challenges. The imperfections of Zoom technology and the few seconds it takes to decide who should speak next and who should turn on or off their microphones conspires to destroy the lively give and take of classroom life. I've taken to promoting debate in a more formal way. David gives his opinion, then I say, Sarah, what argument could you make against David's answer? Sarah does what she can to summarize the counter-argument, and then I say, 
Micah, summarize the main difference between these two views. He, in turn, does what he can. It lacks the lively spontaneity of a real classroom and sometimes feels slightly forced. Emory is one of the many universities that's allowed some students back to campus, in our case, all the freshmen. This semester, therefore, I'm also teaching live a freshman seminar. The topic is Winston Churchill and George Orwell. At the beginning of the semester, I expected this to be much the better of the two classes. But as it turns out, there are as many drawbacks as benefits to this experience. First of all, I have to sit behind a seven-foot-high plexiglass screen and, in addition, wear a face shield. I'm not allowed to roam around the classroom. The students have to sit widely spaced, each in one of a handful of chairs marked with a green disc. There are 18 of them in a room that can seat 140, and their dispersal drains energy out of the group. Even worse, they are required to wear face masks throughout. That means they all sound muffled when they speak, and they already belong to a generation prone to mumbling. Worse, it's surprisingly difficult to learn their names because I can see only their eyes. Normally, I'm absolutely certain of all the names by week two. This term, I'm still stumbling occasionally after a month. Also, when you can see only the students' eyes, you can't tell whether they're smiling or frowning. Frowns are useful cues to a teacher because they usually signal that a student hasn't understood the previous remark or has disagreed with it, or has been offended by it. All those cues are now missing, which makes me feel less certain that I understand the shifting mood of the group as a whole. The simple fact of being able to see the students' faces on Zoom, by contrast, turns out to be unexpectedly gratifying. All this masking and distancing has slowed the rate at which the live group's members have befriended each other. I asked each one to put on the put on the class's dedicated website a photograph and an anecdote about the history of his or her hometown. All 18 of them did so, which has thrown up some fascinating details and helped me and them get a sense of who they are. Last week, one of your speakers spoke about the problem of cheating on exams being made worse by Zoom. Two weeks from now, I'll be running midterms, so her comments prompted me to think about how to guard against cheating. I plan to run a timed midterm in which I send out the exam at 1 o'clock by email and have the students send me their answers as email attachments by 2.15. The exam will require them to write paragraph-length paragraph answers to 8 or 10 questions, such as, why did American isolationism persist into 1941? And what were the advantages of a nuclear weapons-based foreign policy in the 1950s? I'll let them use any books and web resources they want, because the distinction between those who've already studied the material thoroughly and those who are belatedly catching up will be clear. Grading on a curve with a higher than usual standard should eliminate opportunities for misconduct. So to close, I'm impressed by the students, by the technology that enables us to carry on teaching them despite the pandemic, and by the university's good sense in supporting us as we continue our work. Obviously, it's easy enough for me to find so much good in the situation. I realize that the students I'm teaching are exceptional. And I'm certainly not saying that Zoom is better than meeting in person. I'll, I'll be delighted when we can return to the traditional classroom and unmasked face-to-face -face teaching. Perfect. Thank you, Patrick. Okay. Um, I have some uh, technical, technological problems getting through to Paul Peterson, so I'm going to skip ahead uh, and start the discussion about uh, speech on campus. 
Our, our first speaker is Alan Charles Coors. He is an emeritus professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Coors, please go ahead. Uh, thank you, and it is a great pleasure and privilege to be here. Uh, university and college campuses should be among the freest places in America in terms of the expression and testing of ideas and of mutual forbearance on matters of conflicting beliefs. They are now the enemies of that freedom, having largely embraced in practice, if not in principle, Herbert Marcuse's 1969 appeal for an end of what he termed repressive tolerance. In its place, he called for, quote, intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left to the stage of action as well as of discussion, of deed as well as word, close quote. It would not be difficult, Marcuse wrote, to determine, quote, the question of who is to decide on the distinction between liberating and oppressing, between human and inhuman teachings and practices, close. The goal was, quote, the reduction of suffering, misery, and suppression, close, so he explicitly did not care about the requisite double standards. I think that the administrations and faculties at a growing number and a growing number of students on our campuses believe this now and have put it into practice. It's where we are, and the question is, what will happen next? And let me not offer you uh, what might appear to be a string of anecdotes. Take a look at the current cases and case files on the website of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, www.thefire.org before you consider, accept, or reject that view. If you want to know how it appears to conservative students, take a look at campusreform.org. Our colleges and universities on the whole have become, in this year 2020, the enemies of a free society. What happens next? We face on our campuses the convergence of Marcusean liberating versus repressive tolerance, the COVID-induced spread of remote learning and social distancing, the resurgence of Black Lives Matter and its self-proclaimed allies, and a darkly bitter election year, all of which has created an unpredictable mix. In response to limited budgets uh, and uh, the resurgence of Black Lives Matter's agenda, most campuses have committed themselves to what will become a bidding war for increased diversity, but they specifically mean diversity by politicized intersectional notions of race and gender, and given the contempt for, indeed often hatred of, conservative and libertarian blacks and women and gays and think Republican Caitlyn Jenner, transgendered men or women, that will not mean intellectual or ideological diversity increases on campus or 
any occasions for challenging prevailing campus orthodoxies. It will strengthen the orthodox's control of hiring, promotion, the curricular university, and the university in loco parentis, uh, emphasis on the loco. We shall see more, not fewer, instances of compelled speech as professors are asked to profess not merely their area of study, but their express loyalty to whatever passes on our campuses for social justice. And I recall for you that social justice was the name of the journal of the anti-Semitic fascist-loving Father Coughlin in the 1930s. On the other hand, colleges and universities in loco parentis are losing the in-person new student programs and residential programming that provided the rather intimidating face-to-face -face catechism of students into their new culture. And the in-person, quote, conversations close about race, sex, and gender. Conversations really mean, quote, we talk, you cooperate, you end up changed. Can one intimidate potential student dissidents as much by Zoom as by tense in-person self-criticism sessions run by offices of student life and judicial systems? Can one do it in a class if a student's loved ones are hoping to gain an education by listening in? I do not know if parents paying 20000 to $80,000 for their children's remote learning finally will notice that there might be alternatives to the prevailing partisan and divisive model. But given the declining college-age cohort and a probable very significant diminution of the massive cash infusion provided by foreign, above all, Chinese students, a large number of campuses will have to close in the next stretch of years. Might this lead to the emergence of niche models of higher ed, some of which just might proclaim intellectual diversity and academic freedom of speech and respect of private conscience? I doubt it, but perhaps what surely will happen is that the new inquisitorial passions on our campuses to root out what they define as racism, what they define as sexism, what they define as injustice, deprived of daily interactions to police, will more and more respond to what is posted on blogs and social media both in terms of faculty and in terms of students. The woke will be able to say what they wish in what comes next. Dissidents better watch what they say, and you all should watch for that. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Kors. Um, Okay, I'll, I'll go, I'm going to come back to you in a few minutes. Um, our next speaker is Marianne Franks. Uh, Marianne is a professor of law at the University of Miami School of Law. Go ahead, Marianne. Thanks. Thanks very much, Larry and Rick. Uh, Fifty years ago, 
soon-to-be Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell lamented that, quote, frightening progress has been made towards radicalizing the campus. The movement has engulfed many of the most prestigious universities and has a recognized influence on almost every campus. Colleges have been shut down, buildings burned, freedom of speech has been denied, reason discourse repudiated, and academic freedom endangered, end quote. A year later, in 1971, returning to the theme, he claimed that it is common practice, especially on the campus, for leftists to shout down with obscenities, any moderate or conservative speaker, or physically to deny such speaker the rostrum. Powell was, of course, not alone in his view about the dire state of campuses across America. In a speech to the Pentagon on May 1st, 1970, President Nixon said, you see these bums, you know, blowing up the campuses the luckiest people in the world going to the greatest universities, and here they are, burning up the books, storming around about this issue. In Powell and Nixon's views, and those of many other leading conservative voices at the time, the real threat to America in the early 1970s was not endless war, or thousands of preventable tragic deaths, or environmental destruction, or economic inequality, police brutality, or the violence and discrimination fueled by racism and sexism. No, the real threat was college students protesting about those issues. In the parlance of the paranoid conservative, campuses around the country had fallen prey to radical leftist indoctrination. And according to this view, feminists, critics of racial injustice, advocates for same-sex rights, opponents of war and police brutality, were all colluding to violently suppress the reasoned, enlightened views of conservatives and impose ideological conformity upon the nation, a campus free speech crisis that threatened to erode the very fabric of American society. Well, everything old is new again. 50 years later, well-funded efforts by conservative groups to strategically highlight a tiny number of cherry-picked sensationalist campus controversies, aided by uncritical self-styles of the libertarians, and a gullible public have led us down the same path. Never mind the fact that compared to the 1970s, there's no coordinated sweeping student protest movement today, and the protests that do take place are milder by many orders of magnitude. Never mind that there is no evidence to support the conclusion that college campuses have been seized by some fit of ideological intolerance, and absolutely no evidence to suggest that conservatives are being disproportionately targeted. Never mind the fact that only the tiniest fraction of the over 4,500 institutions of higher education in the United States have experienced any substantial disruption over controversial figures or ideas, or that despite the outsized attention given by both conservative and mainstream media to anecdotes involving conservative figures, the majority of those disruptions that have occurred have been directed at progressive individuals and ideology. And never mind that college campuses remain some of the most physically safe and intellectually open in the country. Never mind, most importantly, that protest is a quintessential form of free speech. And that to criticize protest in the name of free speech is another way of saying that free speech is threatened by free speech. And that is what the campus free speech crisis is truly about the attempt to delegitimize the free speech of some groups in order to maintain the free speech dominance of other groups. What was true in the 1970s and is true today is that when the powerful claim that free speech is in crisis, what they really mean is that free speech is no longer in their exclusive domain. Now, as then, students who dissent from institutional and political authority are portrayed as threats to public order who must be brought in line with force if necessary. In the name of protecting free speech, the powerful will use increasingly aggressive measures to ensure that historically marginalized groups stay silent. And we see this in multiple ways. For instance, in law, at least in 17 states, there's been 
anti-protest laws since enacted since 2015. These are based on model legislation drafted by the conservative-funded Ethics and Public Policy Center and the Goldwater Institute, bearing the Orwellian title of the Campus Free Speech Act. Conservative lawmakers have used the manufactured campus free speech crisis as an excuse to use these bills to impose draconian anti-protest policies on colleges and universities, punishing and prohibiting student and faculty speech according to remarkably vague and broad terms. We see this too in coordinated attacks on professors and classes that are perceived as liberal by right-wing political leaders and organizations. We think, for instance, of Newt Gingrich's recent and embarrassing attack on Washington Lee's class on revolution, we see this, too, in Republican Senator Tom Cotton's introduction of a bill this summer to ban the use of federal tax dollars to teach the 1619 Project in schools, which was, of course, reinforced most recently by President Trump's declaration that California schools would lose education funding if they were teaching the 1619 Project curriculum. And then, of course, there are the notorious organizations that are engaging in McCarthyist tactics against so-called um, so perceived progressive uh, professors, including Turning Point USA, who hosts a professor watch list that urges the reporting and punishment of academics who demonstrate leftist commitments in the classroom. Websites like Campus Reform and College Fix feature similar stories. And according to the American Association of University Professors, faculty who've been singled out on these lists and these kinds of sites have been subject to threats of physical violence, including sexual assault through hundreds of emails, calls, and social media postings. We see this, too, in terms of the threats of violence becoming very, very real. It's important to recall that on May 4th, 1970, a few days after Nixon's bum speech, four students were shot dead at Kent State. Another two students were killed during a college protest at Jackson State a few weeks later. Among the people who haven't forgotten about Kent State and who understand its potential significance is a Republican lawmaker from Michigan named Dan Adamini who invoked Kent State after the 2017 protests at Berkeley over the invitation of right-wing provocateur Milo Yiannopoulos. He wrote on social media, I'm thinking that another Kent State might be the only solution. They do it because they know there are no consequences yet. He also wrote, violent protesters who shut down free speech, time for another Kent State perhaps. One bullet stops a lot of thuggery. What the campus free speech handringers have right is that the existing order is indeed being threatened. Long-standing authority is being questioned, mocked, criticized, challenged. Where they go wrong is in failing to see that the attempt to secure civil liberties for all, and not just powerful elites, to speak truth to power, to call for a reckoning of foundational racist and sexist legacies, to dissent against totalitarianism, to oppose fascism in all of its forms, is not a crisis of free speech, but the exercise of it. Thank you. Great. That is certainly a different opinion. All right. Our next speaker is Michael McConnell. Uh, Michael has a new book coming out. I read the wrong one. It is The President Who Would Not Be King, Executive Power Under the Constitution. I hope that clarifies matters. Uh, professor McConnell is Professor of Law and Director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School and a former appellate judge. Go ahead, Professor McConnell. Uh, thanks much, and thanks for uh, uh, clarifying that I'm not taking credit for uh, my colleague Rick's uh, uh, upcoming book. So I want to raise three different issues. One is, do st I want to focus on students and, and whether they feel free uh, to express dissenting views on campus, meaning both in the classroom but also in ordinary campus life. And the first is the empirical question, do they? Uh, second, is this, a, is this really a problem? And then third, what can be done? So uh, 
you know, I've been a professor for 35 uh, years, um, and these things go up and down. So, uh, you know, during the Vietnam War period, there was a, you know, a particular uh, uh, situation about freedom of speech on campus with many dissenters against the war being silenced, but also um, many supporters of the war also being silenced. We then, I think, went through a much calmer uh, period in the, uh, in the uh, 80s and 90s in which I think respect for dif differing points of view became um, more, much more common uh, than they were before. Uh, but in the last, uh, I don't know how many years, five years, ten years, uh, we have, I think, reached the worst period that I have experienced in, uh, in, in my academic life. I have never had so many students come to me unsolicited and pour out their hearts about how uh, difficult it is for them to uh, speak their own opinions uh, uh, in, uh, in class and, uh, uh, and elsewhere. So, you know, I, as Marianne says that this is just, you know, cherry-picked cases and that there's no evidence, but there actually is very substantial evidence. There's been a lot of polling data, for example. If you believe in polling data, there was a particularly detailed uh, uh, study at a University of North Carolina uh, in which uh, students were asked whether they, uh, in a particular, each one asked about a particular class, uh, and did they ever self-censor? And it turns out that you know a lot of students do self-censor, uh, self-censor on both sides of the political equations. Some 23 percent of those who identify themselves on the left. Uh, but 68% of those who identify uh, as conservative, moderates, by the way, 49. Uh, another recent survey of 2,225 college students nationwide uh, found that 57% of these students think that university administrators should be able to restrict political views that are seen as, quote, hurtful or offensive uh, to others. Um, there was a very recent uh, large-scale study by the Knight Foundation and the Gallup uh, Polling Organization in which 63% of students agreed that the climate on their campus deters students from expressing themselves openly. This, by the way, is uh, a long uh, question they've asked before, and this number has gone up uh, rather dramatically in the last uh, uh, few years. Just uh, it, it actually has gone up by... Uh, 19% uh, just in the last four uh, years. But rather than just talk about polls, I suggest that people talk to students. Uh, I wonder if Mary Ann has ever had a candid conversation with a right of center student about how that student feels uh, about the free speech environment on, uh, on campus. Uh, I, you know, I, I am I, I, the, the, you know, unintended recipient of a lot of this. I speak on campuses around the country and I talk to student groups uh, and uh, I can tell you that, uh, that students are, um, that are especially students who are right of center or religious are uh, feeling frightened, they are feeling bullied, they are not welcomed, uh, they, uh, and, uh, 
and the, they do not feel free uh, uh, to speak up. So, you know, is this really a problem? Um, I actually believe that the only people, I don't really think there's a debate over the facts. I think those who deny that there's a problem really just think it's a good thing, um, or maybe just they may not just not care about students of a particular political view, but they, or, but they may even think it's a good thing uh, that uh, that they are uh, systematically silenced on one side of the of the political spectrum. Uh, but uh, I think this is a a real a, a, a real dagger at the heart of what. Uh, universities are supposed to be, because when students self-censor um, uh, and you just don't hear uh, uh, differing points of view and important questions, uh, they just keep their mouths shut. Uh, it, it, uh, it, uh, it makes a, a discourse uh, impossible. It makes the free inquiry in universities impossible. Um, it's bad enough for the conservative students. Uh, who are deeply, I think, wounded uh, by this. But it's, I think the biggest and unsung victims of this are actually the liberal and progressive students who don't have the benefit of hearing differing views. They, they are uh, led to believe that they're in some kind of a bubble. They don't have to test their views against dissenting opinions. Uh, they don't have to learn how to frame their opinions in ways that might appeal to folks who don't already uh, agree with them, uh, they are deprived of the benefits of a genuinely uh, liberal uh, education. Now, I do not actually believe that much can be done about this from a legal point of view. This is not something that the law can easily deal with, but it is something that university administrations can and should deal with. When on the modern university, you know, you, you know, the college president and, and various other officials are not silent on what they consider to be the important issues of the day, they ought to give a little bit of attention to this. When a bullying incident about freedom of speech comes up, they ought to feel free. They ought to denounce it. But even more importantly, they ought to devote affirmative time in orientations and in courses and other ways to helping to spread the message that differing points of view are actually a benefit to all students, that, we ought, that students ought to welcome uh, the, uh, 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 the, the voicing of, of points of view that they disagree with. Uh, universities on the whole, my university included, uh, just really uh, have fallen asleep on this issue. Thank you, Professor McConnell. Okay, um, our next speaker is Professor Heidi Kitrosser. She is at the University of Minnesota Law School. Go ahead. Great, thank you. Um, and I'm uh, going to, my, my part will be a little bit of a meta discussion because I'm going to use my time to make a few points um, about the public discourse itself, um, of which I, I suppose this discussion is a part of that, but I'll be talking about the broader public discourse um, surrounding the phenomenon of free speech in higher education. Um, and I'm going to be drawing my points mostly from a paper that I published on this topic uh, a few years back in 2017. Um, so my first point, quite simply, is that there's enormous imprecision in the public discourse on these issues. So just to give one example, we, fre we frequently hear uh, prominent commentators in the media, uh, mainstream and otherwise media, lamenting the fact of political correctness 
or more recently of cancel culture. Um, and yet these terms tend to shed much more heat than light. So for example, in my paper, uh, I reviewed a random sampling of newspaper articles, blog posts, television transcripts, campus newspapers, other forms of news commentary from uh, 2014 through late into, into 2016. Um, and I found, among many other things, several disparaging references to the phenomenon of trigger warnings. Yet, interestingly, not a single one of the references actually defined trigger warnings. Now, why does that matter? Well, consider just a few of the forms that a trigger warning might take. It might entail a professor choosing for their own pedagogical reasons to give students a head up, heads up that some reading involves, a, let's say, a graphic recounting of sexual violence so that students who have experienced such violence can prepare themselves emotionally. Alternatively, it might entail a professor who, again, for their own pedagogical reasons, chooses to go even another step further, and they not only warn students about the reading, but they offer them an opportunity to opt out of that reading, um, to do an alternative assignment instead, let's say. But then there's a third alternative. Suppose that a professor adopts a trigger warning of whatever kind, due not to their pedagogical judgment, but due to an administrative or a legislative mandate. So in my view, the first two examples are simply a matter of academic freedom. And while if I were a friend of the professors and we were having a back and forth and they were asking my advice, we may well have differ differing views about the wisdom of the particular trigger warning they're using. Um, it's well within the realm of you know, reasonable pedagogy and academic freedom, so really not a problem. The third example, on the other hand, the administrative or legislative mandate, would be quite troubling. And so that's just one example of what a tremendous difference it can make to know exactly what we're talking about when we use terms like political correctness or cancel culture or like this specific example, trigger warnings. Now, another example of tremendous imprecision that I found both in the 2014 to 2016 period as well uh, as in a period in the mid-90s that I also studied in reviewing uh, media commentary. Um, and that relates to what commentators mean when they complain that some students silence others on campus. Um, as it turns out, in the vast bulk of cases, the commentators were complaining that, that silencing occurs because of students engaging in counter counter speech. Uh, in other words, the people complaining were saying, well, look, these students call people out for making what they consider racist or sexist remarks. Therefore, people are afraid to be called out as racist or sexist, and they censor themselves, and that's bad. Um, now, I should say that um, I, very, I actually very much appreciated Professor McConnell's remarks, and I appreciated in particular how precise he was in talking about the phenomenon of silencing, and he was very clear um, in that, or at least as I read it, that much of his concern was um, this sort of self-censorship um, because of fear of being called out. And when we you know, are precise in what we're talking about, then we can discuss, is that a good thing or a bad thing, right? I, I um, have more mixed feelings about the phenomenon than Professor McConnell suggested. We could get into this in the Q&A. Um, but I do think, as uh, Professor Frank suggested, that oftentimes uh, you know, fear of self-censorship, um, oftentimes it's itself a response to counter speech. 
It's a fear that someone may say something in response to something you say, so you might think more thoughtfully about what you're saying. And on some level, it's an example of the marketplace of ideas at work. Doesn't mean it always works well, um, but I think it's, it's a mixed phenomenon. And the point is it's, it's a far more complex phenomenon with free speech interests on both sides than we would be talking about if we were talking about, say, a campus speech code, which is why this larger phenomenon in terms of media reporting and media commentary that I found that uh, commentators tend to use sweeping terms like censorship in, in a couple of cases, I kid you not, even totalitarianism, when it seems that what they're really talking about is self-censorship, why that imprecision is, is so problematic uh, and even damaging. Even damaging. Um, now, my second point is that this imprecision matters for a number of reasons. Um, and one of them is that it can lead to a backlash against so-called political correctness or so-called cancel culture that itself threatens academic freedom. And this very much echoes points that uh, Professor Franks was making. Um, so she gave some examples of the way in which sort of a backlash against a, a perceived political correctness or a perceived uh, campus free speech crisis itself can threaten academic freedom. She gave an example of uh, some particular administrative or uh, measures or proposed legislation. Um, just to offer another example, in the last year or two, a number of state legislatures have introduced bills to mandate so-called intellectual diversity on campuses in a number of ways. Now, in the abstract, we might all very well celebrate the idea of intellectual diversity. However, the notion of state legislatures defining it as a matter of law and then micromanaging a university's academic decisions ranging from faculty hiring and retention to speaker invitations in order to service it, um, that in itself, in my view, poses a grave threat to academic freedom. And again, it does so paradoxically in the name of free speech. Now, my final point is that beyond the way in which knee-jerk denunciations of political correctness or cancel culture can themselves generate threats to free speech, these reactions are also ironic, I think, in a, in a more foundational way. Um, and that is they can themselves stifle the kind of give and take discussion between students and between faculty and students, um, the kind of give and take discussion and reflection that liberal education and free speech are most classically about. Uh, so here I will quote none other than John Stuart Mill, uh, who wrote, quote, the fatal tendency of mankind to leave off thinking about a thing when it is no longer doubtful is the cause of half their errors. A contemporary author has well spoken of the deep slumber of a decided opinion, unquote. So as applies, as applied to today's topic, that's a fancy way of saying that perhaps we would all be better off if commentators spent less time demanding that students shut up and enjoy their free speech and a little more time listening to their concerns and responding with nuance. And on that note, um, let me just close with, with one or two very quick anecdotes. Um, one of the things I talked about in my paper that I cited um, was uh, a, a report uh, by, or a, an essay, which I think they turned into a book written by Erwin Chemerinsky and Howard Gilman uh, when they were both at UC Irvine, in which they talked about their experience teaching to a group of undergrads um, teaching a class on free speech, and they took a poll at the beginning of class. They found the students were not, uh, their answers suggested a lot of wariness about free speech, and Chemerinsky and Gilman said, rather than admonishing the students and saying, don't you understand how important free speech is and lamenting the stupidity or ignorance of the students, um, 
they had a conversation with them and they, they became, developed a much deeper understanding of why the students' life experiences uh, uh, and their perspectives uh, had given them the views they did. Chemerinsky and Gilman talked a lot about the history of free speech, its connection to social movements. Um, and it sounds like it ended up being an incredibly productive uh, semester. My own experiences, by the way, uh, talking with students about these issues, which I've done very often, uh, is very similar. Um, you know, my, my own view, certainly on the First Amendment, I often say is that of basically a 1970s ACLU liberal. I tend to be quite libertarian when it comes to free speech, but I've really listened to uh, those students who have expressed a bit more wariness about it as it relates to race and gender, and it's led to some very productive discussions. In some cases, perhaps we've changed each, other, each other's minds a little bit even. Um, all right, I will stop there, um, and thank you for what so far I think has been a nuanced and productive discussion. Thank you, Heidi. Okay, our final speaker is Philip Carl Salzman, and then we're going to go to question and answer. Go ahead, Philip. Thank you. Um, the uh, historian of science, uh, Alice Drager, in her book, Galileo's Middle Finger, Heretics, Activists, and One Scholar's Search for Justice, says, academic freedom must mean tolerating an unpredictable plurality of ideas and voices. That toleration, uh, I think, has largely disappeared from uh, North American universities today. Uh, and the reason is there's been a, an almost religious conversion to uh, to a new morality, uh, an official conversion to a new morality. Uh, and that is a substantive morality, not a morality of discussion, but a morality of knowing what's right and what's wrong. Um, that morality is generally labeled social justice. And social justice is operationally defined as um, diversity, inclusion, and equity. This new morality has been officially established and enunciated in almost all universities. Special uh, officers have been appointed, called diversity officers, uh, at every level of the university, from vice presidents down to uh, assistant deans, uh, even in departments, to supervise and ensure that the norms of the new morality are followed. Uh, and deviance from that morality are either re-educated or expunged. This is not limited, however, to universities. Uh, it was said earlier that it would be good if university officials did something about the problems with uh, academic freedom and free speech in universities. But they're fully behind um, uh, social, ju social justice, and 
in no in no way prepared to uh, to return to the old days of a plurality of ideas and voices. But it's not just them; they have also been given demands and instructions from academic associations, scientific associations, uh, that all have adopted these this new morality. Uh, and the government, too, up to the highest level, has required universities to adopt this. Uh, the Canadian uh, the Canadian national government, has sent demands to every university president to conform to social justice morality. Uh, so what is social justice morality? It's the exclusive focus on equality to the exclusion of all other values, to the exclusion of freedom, truth, prosperity, uh, merit, excellence, or any other value. But it's not, it's not our father's idea of equality. It's not equality before the law. It's not equality of, uh, of opportunity. It's equality of outcome. So it's, it's a very uh, extreme notion of equality, but its unique features are not limited to that. It's as well applied not just to individuals. Individuals don't much count anymore. It's applied to census categories of people, to racial groups, religious groups, sexual groups, sexuality groups. Uh, and by so doing, um, requires that outcomes be the same for every such category in any organization or any activity. Uh, what this, in fact, has led to is a kind of a, an adoption, or sorry, an adaptation of the, the Marxist class conflict system uh, to an identity uh, class, class conflict system. And you, say, you see that playing out in, uh, in the demands of various racial, uh, religious, uh, sexuality groups on campus demanding special circumstances, special preferences, special benefits, uh, special ceremonies, special housing, um, special uh, dietary arrangements. Uh, and so uh, the, the campus now has become a, uh, a forum for this uh, identity class, class conflict. Uh, of course, uh, in class conflict, they're good guys and bad guys. And the bad guys are, uh, are people who are, as they say, overrepresented. They've been too successful. So there's, uh, there's considerable uh, action 
as we know, in admissions against Asian students who, although they're people of color, they've been too successful and therefore have to be uh, displaced by others who are underrepresented uh, and have been so far less successful. Uh, and also, of course, uh, a um, movements against uh, men uh, and against whites uh, because they are overrepresented and are, are characterized as oppressors. So university, uh, as elsewhere in society, now is seen as consisting of oppressors and victims. And the victims, uh, by the new morality, must be given special benefits and special preferences. Uh, one of those benefits and preferences is that their ideas should not be challenged by anyone. Because if they are challenged by anyone, uh, then the comeback is that they're the oppressor, so, so they should stay silent and apologize for their oppression. So this is what lies behind the loss of, uh, of academic freedom and free speech in universities. It's a cultural revolution, and it's changed, it's changed our universities just as it's changing our society at large. Thank you. Uh, Rick Banks, do you want to start with a question? Thank you. Yes, let me start. No, this is a, a wonderful discussion. So let me just uh, to, to offer a little bit of framing, because part of the problem or, or the bind that we're in at the university is that on the one hand, we have ideals of free speech, right? This notion that all views are welcome, right? So we want to be an open space, right, where people can, can debate and exchange views. But as a university, it is our business to be in the business of evaluating ideas, Right. So uh, and we teach our students how to evaluate ideas. A university education is nothing more than that, teaching people that some ideas really are better, better informed, more well-reasoned, more grounded in reality than other ideas. So as I used to tell my students uh, from time to time, when they come into the classroom, they actually don't uh, have an entitlement to their opinion. You know, we're used to say, oh, I mean, you know, you're entitled to think what you want. Well, no, in the classroom, you're not entitled to think what you want. In fact, if what you think is actually ill-informed, is misguided, is contrary to fact, is, is premised on assumptions that can be shown to not be true, you're not entitled to those views because you're required to reason and to try to reach well-informed views. So the question then becomes, and that's the bind that the university is in. The question then becomes, though, for all of the speakers, I want, I'm, just, I'm throwing this out broadly, is why should we worry about social opprobrium in the classroom? Uh, if, for example, you know, I'm teaching a class in property and, you know, someone begins to say, well, you know, I think maybe slavery actually wasn't such a bad idea and, you know, we can, you know, square it uh, with conventional and desirable views about property and they go on and on, um, you know, the effort to resurrect slavery, I, I feel, is, is not something that we should indulge as a view to be aired in the classroom, uh, and that if other students were to uh, um, 
you know, express negative views or, or even shun uh, the student who is actually promoting slavery as a social good, you know, maybe that's not such a bad thing. So what about that? Are there, uh, should we worry about social pressure in the classroom? Is that a bug in the system or is that a feature of the system? This is Alan Charles Course here. Can I, can I respond to that? Of course, please, it's open. Yeah. <laughs> good. Uh, <clears throat> one, I'm going to doubt that you've had too many. It's a good example, but I'm going to doubt that you've had too many students uh, suggesting the return of slavery uh, in a 21st century American classroom. But let's say you had a student who said, you know, the problems that are all being blamed on institutional racism uh, in fact have to do often with choices made by the black community. And the person talked about, say, marriage rates, illegitimacy rates, crime, gangs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and believed that these were not all attributable uh, to slavery, Jim Crow, uh, and unequal treatment in American society. If that person gets shunned, if that person gets inhibited, then you're in real trouble at a university. If we cannot talk about, in good faith and sincerely, about the possible causes about social dysfunction in America from a variety of perspectives, but I suspect that you know and I know that that person, let's, let's call the student Heather McDonald, for example. You know and I know that that person is going to be severely responded to in most American classrooms, in classroom and out of classroom and at a podium, and that that will have a chilling effect upon the ability to engage in rational, informed debate uh, on American campuses. Hi, this is Heidi. I, I, oh, sorry. Hi, hi. This is Heidi. Um, I just wanted to, uh, uh, I guess, offer a response to that last, or some thoughts in response to the last comment. Um, so, I, I do agree that, and I was trying to get at this in my remarks as well, that you know, I don't think that just because our concern in a given case or an articulated concern in a given case is about self-censorship um, because of sort of an informal chill chilling effect, that that's not a valid concern, that, the, you know, I, I, I wouldn't suggest the only concerns are formal restrictions. Um, but it's always very case-specific. I don't think that self-censorship is intrinsically a bad thing. It very much depends on the situation. Sometimes self-censorship just means, you know, you're actually giving some thought to what you're saying beforehand because you want to make sure that it has a logical foundation. That's not the kind of self-censorship we're well, scared of. But, yeah, well, let me, let me finish my thought and then you, sorry. you can respond. Um, that's all right. That's okay. So, um, uh, so, you know, so it's not intrinsically a bad thing, right? It does come down to this case-by-case -case question. Um, and you can't really generalize, right? Is it bad? Is it not bad? I think how it should be handled in a given case, it depends on what kind of self-censorship as a professor that you sense is going on. Um, and it's a very delicate thing, right? But I think ultimately that has to be handled with, uh, by the professor. And let me just give one example of something uh, that happened to me last semester. So I was teaching uh, constitutional law 
And I taught Dred Scott, which of course, as everyone on the call probably knows, is uh, the case, you know, now widely reviled case that, that, you know, was seen as one of the precursors to the Civil War in which uh, the, the Supreme Court essentially said um, that a slave sort of by definition cannot be a citizen and that uh, having a slave is to have property that cannot be taken away, um, uh, you know, through legislation. And I, t I and, and we covered Red Scott much like I covered a lot of other cases in that I was trying to get the students to understand what the court was saying um, in a sort of straightforward way. And a few students came to me the next day and they were actually pretty upset about that. Um, and they said, you know, we think you just need to say more about the context, the background. And anyway, we ended up having a discussion in class that I thought was very productive, um, in part because I didn't just sort of shoo them away. Well, one, one other quick example, this is actually the one I, I, I meant to mention first, is that I had a student who also came to me one day and said, you know, when we talk about originalism, we talk about the founders, we talk about the framers, these are these really reverential terms. She said, that's actually really hard for me because I'm a, a direct descendant of a slave of George Washington. Um, and it occurred to me that that is a perspective I don't think she would have felt comfortable sharing in the classroom because I think some students would have rolled their eyes. They would have thought that's beside the point. That's about your feelings. Um, and so this is just to say that I think self-censorship can occur on, on all sides of the debate and all sides of the political spectrum. And I don't know that we can really generalize about when it's bad and when it's good. The professor really has to handle it case by case. Alan Coors again, then I'll stay quiet. Uh, no, we don't. We don't want you to stay quiet. Remember, we're having we're having I'm, debate. I'm very interested in the notion of a specious generalization about political correctness uh, and lack of data, lack of statistics. Uh, I wish that when I heard colleagues talk about McCarthyism, they applied. Uh, the same set of categories, though actually I don't. I think uh, they're perfectly correct uh, to have a double standard uh, that ought to become a single standard. What was uh, McCarthyism, uh, I doubt very much if uh, I could be wrong, if Marianne and Heidi are going to ask me for statistics. We had thousands and thousands of professors hired during that period. How many weren't hired because of their left-wing associations? Uh, we don't know that. What we do know is the chilling effect of even if it were 10, 15, 20 cases where with impunity people could deny people university slots or even seek to fire them, uh, or lower their pay because of what were perceived as unpatriotic comments or communist affiliations. No one I know on the left talks about the need for statistics on McCarthyism, on blacklisting. How many were blacklisted? Ten, a thousand, ten thousand, given all the actors we have? Uh, it just doesn't make sense that one does not understand living in a university that has such pressure for people to conform to a racial identity politics, a gender identity politics, that there is a chilling of speech, 
And we all know it is there in hiring. I've been at a university since 1968. In the beginning, people bent over backwards to hire people who were intellectually different from themselves. After a very short time, by 1980, hiring was increasingly collegiality equals people who agree with me. Smart colleagues are people who agree with me. Decent colleagues are people who agree with me about the fundamentals. Uh, and all of a sudden, there is discrimination based on ideology, on politics, on what popular journals you publish in. Uh, anyone who has lived through universities has to know that. I don't understand how you can talk about McCarthyism on the one hand and not understand the McCarthy-like nature of this academic age. Oh, Patrick Allitt I wonder if I can bring a slightly different perspective to all this. I always feel there's an enormous disconnect between hearing conversations like this and reading about them in the media and then actually going to campus. When I'm teaching my classes, I don't want students simply to express their opinions. As Rick says, for the purposes of the classroom, uh, all ideas are not equal. And I think I managed to head off um, cantankerous debate on personal views by insisting that the students confine themselves to what the assigned readings have said or what's been introduced in the curriculum itself. If I, if I know or if I become aware as a student's either intensely enthusiastic for a, a political position of the left or the right, I'll always make a point of requiring that student to make the strongest arguments for the other side. I think that's part of what our job should be as professors. And, of course, the vast majority of departments in the university hardly ever raise questions like this. It's certainly likely to come up in, in African-American studies and in women's studies and in ethnic studies, but it's much less likely to come in, in physics or, in, in fact, in any of the hard sciences. And even in anthropology and, and English, there's such a lot of material which requires um, strict attention to the to, to learning the discipline of the of the discipline there, there ought to be an absolute minimum of occasion for this so the reality in my daily teaching life is that things like this almost never emerge and if a student makes a remark which I think is likely to be inflammatory I try to um, squelch it by bringing it right back to an analysis of the text we've got right in front of us can I call on Philip Salzman? Uh, Philip, you um, you teach anth or a uh, retired anthropology I, teacher. Yes, Could I you comment? I'm an anthropologist. I started teaching at McGill University in 1968 uh, and retired 50 years later. Uh, it hasn't been long since I retired. And um, for me, uh, the elephant in the room is the uh, uh, is the lack of balance of views in the professoriate, uh, where every survey that you look at makes very clear that uh, uh, it, often broken down into American political parties, that the ratio tends to be 10 to 1 uh, up to uh, 70 to 0. 70 to 0 is anthropology. Um, all Democrats, no Republicans. Um, these days, anybody to the right of Che Guevara is denounced as, as far right. 
uh, if not with nastier terms. Philip, uh, so, what do you say to Patrick about the fact that anthropology is a science and therefore the politics doesn't enter the conversation? No. Uh, anthropologists have rejected science from the arrival of postmodernism in the 1980s. Nobody believes in science anymore in anthropology. Nobody believes in truth anymore in anthropology. What they believe in is their identity group. My colleagues uh, um, either uh, were pushing for their identity group. My female colleagues insisted that we hire only females. And there was always a very rigorous um, uh, interrogation to ensure that anybody we hired was a uh, uh, was a very strong uh, feminist. Uh, there was a political interrogation, and uh, f for the rest, uh, they they were very proud to proclaim themselves communists, Marxists, uh, and socialists. So. Uh, by the time I was uh, at the end of my teaching career, students, students, uh, when they heard my views, which which are kind of classical liberal views, they said, "We we've never heard anything in our classes like the kind of thing that you say." They were they were stunned. Uh, the uh, the orthodoxy was a was a uh, progressive or far left. Orthodoxy uh, and everything. The the most popular theory in anthropology today is called postcolonial theory, and postcolonial theory says basically that everybody in the world got along well until Western imperialists and colonialists came along and introduced oppression and evil around the world. Uh, this is a kind of uh, Leninist theory, uh, highly uh, ahistorical, uh, but it's it's held by all anthropologists. Even archaeologists have adopted it. It's it's truly stunning. Uh, all right, let me bring in uh, Marianne Franks for a second. Uh, Marianne, uh, Professor Kors started with. Um, a long discussion about Herbert Marcuse and his article, Repressive Tolerance. And if I recall in that article, what Marcuse was saying was that um, members of the right controlled the media, uh, and therefore we didn't have to worry about um, the right's views being articulated either on campus or in the public space, and that the left um, therefore needed sort of like a boost or a monopoly um, on campus. Uh, you made some comments that the, um, the, the conservative thinkers really are making a big deal out of nothing and that we don't need to, to worry about their speech so much. Um, do you agree with Marcuse? Are you disputing Kors' interpretation of Marcuse? Where are you on that? Well, I appreciate the contextualization of Marcuse, although I must say I'm always surprised to hear names like that appear in conversation. I wish any of my students had ever heard of such a person. but. Um, the idea that this is something that they're intimately familiar with and therefore sort of spreading across campuses is something I do find somewhat amusing. But um, I think the larger point that you're making is, yes, a very important one, which is 
we do need to acknowledge the political and practical reality that we live in. It is not as if we are starting in the classroom or anywhere else with the kind of blank slate, right? We know that our politics and our education and our entertainment and our businesses, all of those are dominated by a very specific group. And forget about political affiliation for a moment. Every single major sector of society and government is dominated by white wealthy men. That is simply the world we live in. So what that means is, is that if we're talking about people who are rising up against the fairness of that or are pointing out that maybe the reason for that is not superior skill, um, but a kind of affirmative action for white men that has been going on since our country started, then that the, the two kinds of positions aren't on the same footing. And if we are concerned with free speech, we should be slightly more solicitous towards the viewpoint that is in the dissent, but the one that is not the one that is firmly entrenched. In reality, forget about who gets to speak, um, who gets the attention by the media, but just in terms of what the actual political, economic, uh, social, all of it, what our reality actually is. And with, for instance, even at universities, the top 25 universities are, um, I think it's 18 out of 25 are headed up by men. I think there's maybe one or two uh, people of color in that list. So it's important to realize what the context is, that the people who most need to listen to dissent and disagreement probably are the people in power at any given point in history. And it is interesting to note how the words and the emotions about people's feelings um, change according to who you're sympathetic with. Because part of this entire uh, free speech crisis narrative, right, was also caught up in the snowflake narrative in 2016, the coddling of the, the college students. And what we kept hearing by proponents of that narrative is that, oh, these students are so wrapped up in their feelings. They don't care about the discipline or the facts or they just, all they care about is their feelings. And now we're told, right, that the really important thing that shows us that we're in some kind of crisis of censorship on campus is that conservative students feel really bad and that they're nervous all the time and they're scared to talk. So what we classify as just too much in their feelings when it's liberal students is suddenly self-censorship when it's conservatives. And there was a question posed earlier on about whether I had ever spoken to a writer center student um, about their feelings uh, about you know, whether they were nervous to say something in the classroom. And I have a lot of conversations with students um, all across the board. I don't actually think of my students in terms of their ideological affiliation. I think of them in terms of what it is that they're trying to communicate to me at any given moment. But I will say that for students who come to me and say, I'm nervous about saying X because I'm worried about how, what reaction will be. Um, you know, Michael and I are both, and Heidi as well, we're, we're law professors. We are fully aware, and Ricky too, you know this, that it's not about how someone feels, right? It, it is about what the facts are. It's about reasonable measures. It's supposed to be something like an aspiration objectivity. So to any student who was trying to say, I don't want to make argument X because I'm worried that people won't like me because of it, I would never suggest that that student um, shouldn't do a little bit more interrogation of themselves and their ideas because, again, um, if we talk about domination in marketplaces, if we talk about people who are scared to, to talk, I think we have to at least entertain the possibility that one of the reasons they're scared to talk is because their ideas aren't very good. And if they're really worried about people judging them or thinking that they're racist, maybe they ought to worry about that because maybe their ideas aren't good. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's the case in every case, and I'm certainly not suggesting that I'm not empathetic to any student who says I'm worried about saying X. But because I am a law professor and because I do believe that my students are capable of critical thinking about their own ideas as well as everybody else's, I would invite them to ask themselves, what are you nervous about? 
are you nervous about putting forward this position because you know you can't back it up? Um, or are you nervous about it? And this is a conversation that I don't know how many of the people on this call have had um, with students who say, I'm nervous about saying X because I'm a rape victim. And having this conversation about the law of sexual violence is actually really hard for me to do calmly and rationally. Or how many students have ever come to you to talk about how because they were a victim of domestic violence, it's a bit difficult to talk about a particular case in criminal law. Or how many students who have been stopped and frisked by police repeatedly um, are getting a little bit nervous about a conversation we're going to have about um, the Terry versus Ohio case. So, in other words, I guess what I'm what I'm baffled by increasingly, right? And this is hearkening back in some ways to my <laughs> my wild youth as a conservative. I, I used to be conservative because I thought being conservative meant caring about the actual underlying reasons for things, not about your emotions about things. I thought that's what it meant. I've, I've since come away from that. But, but what has really surprised me about conservative discourse in the last decade or so is how much of it is just nothing but feelings, right? I'm so scared to give my ideas. I'm feeling censored in the classroom. I am uncomfortable about something that I might say. And that's supposed to be dispositive somehow. But of course, if liberals were trying to say, I'm nervous about this, or I'm offended by your racism, or I find that to be a troubling statement, it's all, oh, you're fragile, you're a snowflake. So I guess I'm just, I would just want to return to this question of making sure that we as professors um, and, and whatever it is that we try to do in our academic lives is to try to embody the principles of neutrality and general applicability, right? If we're having one standard about feelings, let's have that one standard and apply it to all of our students, not express particular solicitude to a student because they're conservative. I don't think there's any reason to do that any more than I would express particular solicitude to a student because they're liberal, at least for the purposes of the classes that I teach. Um, and this is echoing, I think it was Patrick. It's about the strength of their ideas. I don't need to hear their opinions about things. It's not a therapy session. What I need to hear is that they are good critical thinkers who are trying to absorb the material and they're trying to accomplish the objectives of the class while being civil and engaged and respectful with their um, other classmates. If there were that they can't do that, then I would try to truly, because I care about every student, I would try to figure out what the problem is and I would try to address it the best way that I could. May I just jump in here? Um, you know, of, of course there are people who have too fragile feelings on all sides of the, uh, of the spectrum. And when I talk to groups of conservative students, I actually give them the speech about how this strengthens them. It doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't, they have the advantage of having to uh, defend themselves in a largely hostile environment. And they, they, they sometimes call it their secret weapon, uh, that, uh, and they ought to develop that skill. But we're not talking about students who self-censor because they're afraid somebody won't like their opinions. We're talking about organized campaigns of bullying. And, the, and it's not a special standard for conservative students. Universities do not allow the bullying of students on the basis of other characteristics. Uh, and, and when I say bullying, let me just refer it back. I'm sorry if I'm, I'm the guy you know, quoting polling uh, uh, data here. Uh, but this uh, uh, survey of University of North Carolina students was extremely revealing. And, and when asked the question, how often did respondents hear, quote, disrespectful, inappropriate, or offensive comments about other students on the basis of various characteristics, even the self-described liberal students 
said that they had heard those about political conservatives 57.1% of the time. That is way higher than any other uh, group. Uh, Muslims, for example, they said 14.2%. Right? Students born outside the United States, 10.3%. But 57.1% about uh, uh, political conservatives. And what uh, students tell me is that when they express a view in class, uh, they get um, they get uh, a torrent of social media abuse, uh, and this is um, you know th- th- this is not a matter of their having fragile. And a lot of that abuse, by the way, includes you know various threats uh, of uh, uh, of retaliation of various sorts. It's a it is a serious uh, problem, and you know I'm not for using the authority of the university against uh, their critics. What I am for, though, is for the university to stand up for its own values of diversity and inclusion, but to uh, value political diversity and inclusiveness of all students, and not just those who hew the the line of the prevailing uh, political orthodoxy. Uh, Alan Charles Coors here again. I'd like to talk just ever so briefly about an alternative uh, and keep the focus on undergraduates uh, for a moment. Uh, my, my own experience of the 60s, which uh, occurred uh, in the early late 70s, uh, involved the founding of a college house at Penn. Uh, as a young, a young assistant professor, I was very upset uh, over the uh, atomism of the university at which I found myself. And I co-founded a college house, an educational residence, uh, eight faculty, sorry, four faculty, eight grad fellows, 160 undergraduates. Uh, and we advertise it as an educational residence with, uh, that would be a good place to be whoever you were, uh, with no in loco parentis, no social work, and uh, certainly, to say the least, uh, no restrictions on speech. Uh, in our uh, first eight years there, 71 to 79, I was a faculty, resident faculty fellow, later resident housemaster. Uh, we attracted and we had living together in the same dormitory, dining together five nights a week. The entire spectrum of different backgrounds and perspectives. We had first wave gay right activists. We had the leadership of the Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, we had first wave radical feminists. Uh, we had the pro-life board of the Catholic Newman Center. We had black conservatives. We do have Wharton, after all. We had black conservatives and black radicals. We had college Republicans and Maoist revolutionaries. Penn at the time was maybe 2 to 3% black, and I went recruiting among black students, recruiting applications from black students and black admittees to Penn. And after its first year, we were never less uh, than 20% black for the eight years I was there. Now, what we lived was the spontaneous discovery, not mandatory celebration of difference. Uh, there was nothing coerced and artificial about human relationships there. And people moved from insults to conversation, from hostilities to various degrees of understanding, 
from mutual demonization to decent human relationships. Freedom is a wonderful medium. People offended each other all the time, but then they learn to talk to each other uh, and even sometimes to understand each other. And my name even changed from Hey Fascist to Alan, and we are paying a terrible price denying students that kind of meet each other and talk your minds, but respond to each other sincerely and honestly and get to know each other, denying them that experience. I think students are afraid of each other in these politically correct times, and the opportunity costs, the loss, are tragic. Wow, thank, thank you, Alan, very much. This is Rick Banks. So I just wanted to uh, propose a uh, potential remedy to this problem. Uh, Professor McConnell talked about organized campaigns of bullying on campus and, and made reference to the fact that a lot of this bullying is carried out online through social media and so forth. Uh, so here's a proposal, uh, and I want to see what our, our guests think of this. Uh, this has been recently adopted uh, by Harvard Law School, actually. Uh, this call, some of you may know, was initially governed by Chatham House. House rules. It is not now. Uh, according to Chatham House rules, uh, what happens within the conversation stays within the conversation. You can't out speakers and, and uh, publicize who said what. Uh, Harvard Law School now applies the Chatham House rules standards to their classroom so that what happens in the classroom stays within the classroom and that speakers are not to be identified outside the classroom to other parties on social media or otherwise. Is that a step forward, a step back, or neither? Hi, this is Heidi. My, you know, my initial impression is a good one. I think that could have a really salutary effect um, on classroom discussion, probably uh, leading to a little bit more of a willingness uh, you know, for sort of creative thinking and in one's answers. Um, that said, I'd want to, I'd be more inclined to leave it up to the individual professor. Um, I think, you know, some might have good reasons uh, not to want to apply that rule. But yeah, I mean, for, for me personally, if I were thinking about, you know, classroom rules uh, going forward, that that's, I think that's worth thinking about. What about you, Patrick? What do you think of that? Uh, well, I, I guess my approach to the whole thing is for, is for us as faculty members to pay less attention to matters like this. I never go onto social media. I certainly would never go onto my students' social media. Um, I, I regret to hear that they're bullying one another, but I think that that's very remote from our primary area of concern. I mean, my job as a history professor is to teach students some history and to teach them how to think historically and then to then to, to learn how to write and talk about historical issues, which requires a lot of learning of counter-instinctual things. They've got to learn, for example, the importance of understanding that in different times through the nation's history, very different sets of values have applied, so that if we were to be discussing something like the Dred Scott decision, I'd insist that they leave behind completely the views they happen to hold today. And I often think it's a useful exercise to say to a class, think about the values you hold most dear today. And remember that 100 years from now, people will look back on us and, and be revolted and horrified by the knowledge that we once held those ideas. 
but we do hold them, and we hold them in good faith. And therefore, we need to take seriously that other people in other times have held their ideas, which now to us are abhorrent, in good faith also. So then, of course, the students say to me, ah, but which ones of our, idea, which ones of our ideas that we hold now will later seem abhorrent? To which, of course, my answer is, I don't know. But nevertheless, it's a very useful mental exercise to go through. It induces a kind of historical modesty and discourages the students from the from being too um, granitic in holding on to the, the opinions which they feel so forcefully at the moment. I think part of the development of open-mindedness in students is to, is to help them to historically contextualize all the ideas they've got. But anyway, that's a digression. To come back to your practical question, Larry, my view is we should do everything we can to prevent them from discussing things like this in class. Uh, Patrick, let me just follow up with that. This is Rick Banks, and uh, the um, I, I'm, I'm with you that I'm not on social media either. Uh, but as a faculty member, shouldn't we be concerned if it turns out, uh, much to our surprise, that there is bullying occurring outside of the classroom on social media based on discussions that occurred within the classroom? Should not that be a concern of individual faculty as well as the institution? It should be a concern and because, because bullying is always disgraceful. On the other hand, we're not specialists in conflict resolution. And so if we hear that bullying is taking, pl taking place, our job is to defer to people on campus who do know how to adjudicate issues like that. It's highly improbable if it got to that point that we could then settle it to the satisfaction of all the students concerned. Right. Okay. And then, and I, have a, I have a quick point question for Alan Charles Kors. Oh, hold on. We, we, we had somebody else jumping in. Who was okay. that? Is that Marianne wants to jump in? Yeah. If, if so, and I'm saying this partly wearing my hat as the the president of a nonprofit profit organization called the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, which focuses on online harassment and um, discrimination. Uh, one one caveat uh, would be to say I'm kind of pleading for um, Heidi's kind of insistence on specificity here because I do think the term bullying just covers up a lot of things and it can be everything from I don't like your ideas or I think you're a bigot to um, actual rape and death threats, right? So I think we need to be very specific about what's criticism, even if it's kind of uh, crude or, or offensive criticism, which I think we have to be okay with and students, at least at the graduate level, they ought to be okay with. So. I would like to say that, it, of course, it's not our business, and it, it isn't really something that I think should be a surprise to anyone that people are getting criticized online. And to be clear, too, about when we say things like harassment or bullying, um, that we don't mix up protected characteristics or parts of people's identity and their viewpoints. It is perfectly legitimate to critique people's viewpoints. It is not, I think, legitimate to criticize someone simply because they belong to a certain um, class, right? So. It, with all of this in mind, it's a real luxury, I would say, for some people to be able to just sort of exclude the concerns about online harassment and attacks. Um, the fact of the matter is, not just students, but also faculty have to be worried about this, particularly if they're female, particularly if they're people of color, because the kinds of things that happen online include things like being secretly recorded and having that um, either the video or the audio taken out of context, maybe using a pornographic manipulated um, document. It includes things like campaigning to get a slew of uh, rape threats and death threats directed at that particular faculty member or that student. And those things are really quite concerning. And so when you have, and I'm going to go back to 
um, my, and I will insist on the word, the McCarthyist tactics of organizations like Turning Point, because if there is a left-wing cognate to the professor watch list, I haven't seen it. Um, you've got Charlie Kirk, the head of Turning Point, tweeting opportunistically at the beginning of the pandemic that students, you know, you all should make sure that if your professor has switched to Zoom, you should secretly record them and find out if they're indoctrinating other students and then we can shame them, right? You've got a concerted open attempt by these organizations to take advantage of vulnerabilities like online teaching or other um, forms of trust between professors and students in order to chill their speech, right? In order to actually say, we're gonna punish those people. And again, this isn't just self-reports, right? As fond as I might be of the polls generally, I don't put much store by them if they're merely self-reports saying I felt attacked or I was bullied. We need specificity here, we need real data. And the real data so far shows that really when it comes down to finding online threats, not criticism, not crude criticism, not name calling, not parody or satire accounts, but actual threats, uh, publishing someone's home address or threatening them with sexual violence, that is disproportionately happening to um, individuals who are considered to be progressive in some sense. And we should care about that. And we can't just care about one side of this and not the other. So I do think it's a real issue. I don't know what the best way is to approach it, but um, I do think it's a luxury for anyone who can say we can just ignore that. Uh, Marianne, let me let me bring this back to the, the, the Harvard policy, though, for our listeners. Uh, so Chatham House rules that the aim of which is to prevent any faculty member of student being uh, criticize having, having what they've said within class uh, be used against them as it were outside of class would you support that or not as a general matter i think it's probably a good step i think i'd be cautiously um, optimistic about it maybe in the same way that heidi is um, i worry that there's no way really to enforce that right i mean because if we're living under these conditions now these kinds of things get leaked they get to somebody else who's not part of the community it will get out there one way or the other so i'm not convinced that it's very efficacious but in terms of trying to preserve the the rigor and the freedom of the classroom i do worry very much and wrote an entire memo to faculty and students in the wake of the pandemic to suggest that these are certain guidelines we should take into account about privacy and about uh, freedom of expression within the, the classroom, that when you record your classmates without consent, right. you are depriving them um, of the freedom to speak their minds. Because of course, yeah. you take something out of context that's a, you know, that can turn into the worst moment for that student. So as a general matter, I'd say, yes, let's protect the integrity of, that, uh, of the classroom and not engage in those types of practices. Great, and, and Michael McConnell, would you support Chatham House rules applied to the classroom? Well, I am very happy to hear that Harvard Law School is doing this and want to find out if it works. My view is very similar to Marianne's on this. I think in theory it's a very it sounds like a good idea. I'm I wonder whether it works. I wonder if it's going to be enforced. I wonder if it's going to be selectively enforced. I also wonder what happens when you know something inappropriate actually happened in the classroom. Let's say that the professor uh, uh, you know, you know, threatened a student saying, you know, if you express a view like that, or you're, I'm going to flunk you in class. Can the, the student then goes and protests? Well, that student has just violated the Chatham House rules. So, I I, I do wonder how this will work out in, uh, in in practice. But in theory, I think if the classroom could be a place where people could uh, express their views without having them turned into social media. Uh, opportunities, uh, it would be a great thing. Okay, and, and Alan Kors, are you in support as well? 
my my problem is that every rule I have seen at universities over the past thirty years uh, get enforced selectively uh, with a double standard, absent which they wouldn't last a nanosecond. If you go back to what used to be the cruder speech codes at universities before they got PR savvy and put it all under verbal harassment. Uh, you could say anything whatsoever to a black conservative, Uncle Tom, Oreo. Uh, you could say anything uh, that you wanted to an anti, to a, a woman critical of feminism or a pro-life woman, uh, Barbie doll, internalized, oppressive doll. Uh, it's it's uh, a double standard all the way. The first time that a feminist had been set had been sentenced to sensitivity training. Uh, for offending an evangelical, uh, the roof would have fallen down. Everyone would have been out there with academic freedom banners. Uh, so I always think that given the current structure of universities, given the absolute domination of administrations by people who have passed political litmus tests and not been vetoed because of certain political positions, all of these things are going to get uh, enforced selectively. Uh, and also, it's unenforceable. Okay, well, I could have a word. Uh, Please. Yeah, yeah, the idea that the only people uh, being harassed are, uh, are females and blacks um, uh, seems to me not to ignore a vast number of cases all across North America of professors uh, uh, who, who, uh, whose administrations receive uh, a, uh, a, a huge wave of emails demanding that people be fired for saying things like all lives matter, for saying that uh, scientists saying that we really shouldn't hire weaker candidates because they happen to be of uh, some preferred uh, category. Uh, uh, there's been a, a huge wave of, of uh, threats uh, or demands that professors be, be fired for not conforming to social justice morality and for saying things that in, in earlier years would have been uh, mainline liberal views. Uh, the the uh, social justice ideology is, is uh, systematically illiberal and rejects uh, a fair treatment of individuals for special treatment of special categories. Uh, the idea that uh, 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 males run everything. Uh, uh, has anybody noticed the fact that female students dominate in universities in, in uh, both registrations and degrees by 60 to 40 percent? Uh, and that, uh, I don't know about your university, my university has had female uh, presidents for decades. So uh, I, I think okay, that's but a very we should, biased picture. 
Yeah, we should be clear. You may be at a very special university because most universities actually do not have female presidents in the United States. Uh, and certainly the most selective universities uh, don't have a history of having women president. So, uh, so that may be uh, a, a special case. So, um, okay, Larry, Larry, you had a question before we... Sure. Um, I wanted to again? go back to something that Patrick Allen was talking about and asked the question to Alan Kors. Having taken both of your classes uh, on thegreatcourses.com, Patrick goes to great extent to remain neutral uh, politically and to go right to the root of an argument. And Alan, you did the same thing in your intellectual history class. Um, you, you never said whether you liked the theory or disliked the theory. You presented um, that intellectual thinker uh, with his ideas and for why his views fit into a historical context. Um, I guess my question to Alan is this. Um, some professors try to play ideas for the value of ideas, and some people try to bring in other ideas, uh, contemporary politicized ideas, into the conversation. Do you think that's what creates the problem? Uh, I would be very loath to... to advise other professors on the best way sincerely to, to, to teach. Uh, but for me personally, it was extremely important to, to keep my own uh, politics and philosophical and anti-religious views uh, out, of, out of a class. Uh, and at Penn, they, they give anonymous student questionnaires. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I quite loved was uh, in, in my responses from students in this over 50 years, uh, students always say it's very frustrating. We don't know his views of, of politics, of religion, of philosophy. Now, of course, it's much easier to teach the 17th and 18th century that way than it is to teach uh, urban demography in America that way. Uh, so I'm, I'm loathe to, to ad advise other professors. My, my view is that people come to a university not to learn the world according to cores. They'd be imbeciles to pay $70,000 a year for that. Uh, they come to meet people with expertise, to learn from people uh, with expertise. So uh, if I'm studying French grammar, uh, I don't need to know the professor's views for or against uh, abortion. But let, let me... Quickly, a story when I was an undergraduate, I took uh, everything, all the surveys tell me that almost everyone who taught me in history at uh, Princeton early 60s was on the left. Uh, but I never knew that. Their, curricular didn't show, their curriculum didn't show it. Their manner of teaching didn't show it. Their open-mindedness didn't show it. Uh, and I took a course from a brilliant uh, Marxist, Arno Mayer, on 20th century uh, European history. And when he returned the midterms, he had given us a wide variety of reading, but there were one or two things by him in there. Uh, and when he returned the midterms, he said to the class, you have shamed me. You told me what I wanted, what you thought I wanted to hear. So one third of your final exam will be your ability to recreate with intellectual empathy the arguments of the book I most disagree with about the 20th century. And he assigned Friedrich Hayek's The Road to Serfdom. Uh, so his sense when he thought he was having political influence 
in a course was immediately to expose students uh, to thinking antithetical to his own. Uh, if you're going to introduce your own politics, then that seems to me a wonderful academic way uh, to go about it. I want open-minded students. I don't want acolytes, devotees, and disciples. Perfect. All right. Um, this is the point of the program where I turn to each speaker and ask them for a note of optimism. Um, so why don't I start with Patrick Allen. Patrick, um, what are you most optimistic about? Uh, I'm most optimistic about the fact that the, if we have to have a pandemic at all, it came at exactly the right moment when we, uh, we'd got the technology to be able to deal with it. It's incredibly impressive to see how much our students are learning, how much they continue to love to learn, and that they're taking it all in stride, helping each other even at a distance. And I'm also optimistic about the fact that faculty members, me very much included, are learning something new. We're learning how to deal with the technology and to teach at a distance. And it's good for everyone to get out of the rut and learn something new. So I'm feeling strangely optimistic about the, the general academic situation. Thank you. Marianne Franks, what are you optimistic about? Very little, but I'll try. Um, <laughs> I do think there's something about the conversation about feelings and about the sense of attention or heightened attention to certain people's discomfort that could be, it could be um, cause for um, cautious optimism, which is that if there are people who are for the first time experiencing discomfort um, worried that they will not be received well, worried that they will be treated with suspicion or hostility, that it might lead them to an empathetic place where they might think about what it might be like for people who, for whom that has always been true, that they have always had to worry, that someone will look at them and judge them too quickly, and that that could result not only in hostility and exclusion, but, but maybe even physical injury or death. So if there's some way to take this move towards thinking about people's subjective experiences of discomfort that maybe we can actually think about who um, among us may have had those experiences for longer and in more compacting, uh, sort of compounding ways and actually develop some empathy for other people's situations. Michael McConnell. Well, uh, so there are two things I would be optimistic about. One is that students respond, and they often respond quite constructively. So uh, conservative students at Stanford are, have uh, organized reading groups uh, in connection with classes where they read Samizdat literature, I mean, actually often the classics of the, of the, of the field, uh, and discuss these things. They invite other people to come you know, without regard to their views. Uh, but when there is a core of, uh, of, say, conservative students, they feel much freer actually to engage with the material than they ever do in, uh, in class. I don't think in law schools the existence of like the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society have been, you know, continue to bring debate, continue to bring some, some uh, diversity of view uh, to the otherwise monochromatic world of, uh, of elite uh, legal education. So the students' work themselves gives me some uh, a basis for hope. But the, uh, the other thing is that, uh, is that time, the wheel turns. And, you know, I've been around long enough to see, you know, various periods, and, and uh, this too will pass. Thank you. Heidi? Um, well, I think most of my optimism about this issue 
stems from uh, conversations I've had with students about these topics. I think I alluded to the fact that I, because I teach First Amendment law, I often get asked to, um, and I've written a little bit about free speech on campus, I, I frequently get sort of pulled into these brown bag discussions organized by students or by the university or by the law school at various times. So I'd say in the last few years, probably at least a couple times a year, I've um, taken part in kind of big larger discussions with groups of students, sometimes with another professor, uh, sometimes just me and the students. And um, I think those conversations have, have been probably more encouraging than just about uh, anything else I've done in terms of talking about these issues. The students, you know, I think almost without exception, regardless of their starting point, uh, you know, some coming in thinking we had a free speech crisis, others coming in thinking that, that you know, that was sort of manufactured. Um, regardless of their starting points, um, I think I, I found that when they felt that they were really being listened to and being encouraged to talk to each other and, and to, you know, and, and to have the opportunity to listen to other people, um, they were really glad to have that opportunity. And I think we're really open even to changing their views, to compromising somewhat, uh, to the possibility that they hadn't fully thought through the issue one way or another before they spoke with others about it. So that gives me some hope. I think this current generation uh, may, may turn out okay. Thank you. Philip? I'm not very optimistic about <laughs> higher education in North America generally, but uh, I have to say that, um, that I've been encouraged by hearing the emphasis of a number of speakers on, uh, on their commitment to academic values and to focusing on developing academic skills um, in, in their classrooms uh, and leaving aside uh, the uh, other social problems. So uh, if, if those academic uh, attempts are, are still happening, uh, I find that very pleasing. Alan? Uh, here, uh, Mary Ann and I finally reach agreement. I'm not very optimistic either uh, at all. Uh, but uh, uh, causes for optimism, uh, I said the uh, no Russian government uh, would ever accept a unified Germany. Uh, no Russian government would ever accept uh, a uh, Poland that was not its ally on its border, and the whites in South Africa would never give up power without a bloodbath. I was wrong about all those three things. Uh, perhaps I am wrong in my pessimism now. Uh, this still is my main source of optimism. Uh, we live in a country where if you present a little kid with an irrational, arbitrary rule, kid will look up and say, it's a free country. That's not a bad base from which to start. Uh, and there is always the possibility of generational revolt uh, when students once again uh, stop thinking of faculty and administrators as uh, moral gurus on the left uh, and uh, pick up the theme song, the anthem of the free speech movement of the 60s, Phil Oaks, I'm going to say it now. Oh, you'd like to be my father and you'd like to be my dad and give me kisses when I'm good and spank me when I'm bad. 
but since I've left my parents, I've forgotten how to bow. So when I've got something to say, sir, I'm gonna say it now. The same <laughs> people who thrilled to that song in the context of the 60s want to regulate student speech and faculty speech today. It's a generational swindle of epic proportions. Thank you, Alan. Uh, Rick Banks, you get to leave us the last point of optimism. I enter this call not very optimistic, uh, as we're in California where the sky has been dark and the fires have been burning. But hearing this conversation, uh, I'm feeling uh, uh, it gives my spirit a real lift uh, because we have speakers here who themselves have very divergent views, and they've been able to engage around some tough issues in, in ways that I have found enlightening uh, and very inspiring. So my, 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 my hope is that good ideas will move us forward and this conversation has been part uh, of that process of the articulation and the exchange of ideas. So I'm happy we can bring everyone together. Thank you all for joining. Um, I just wanted to give a plug for our next week call. Um, we're having one session on uh, literature. So please read the novella by Catherine Ann Porter called Pale Horse, Pale Rider. It's a 1918 flu short story under 100 pages. Uh, Nancy Bristow and Elizabeth Alka will be discussing it. We will also be having Victor Rios, who will discuss um, policing and Latin gangs. Chris Patterson will join us. Uh, he works for an NGO in Chicago uh, against violence. Uh, and uh, Professor Sampson from Harvard will also be joining us. So thank you very much. Uh, please join us next week at the same bad time. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks to our speakers, and thanks to our listeners. Goodbye, and you can hang up now.